This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making Hey everybody, I'm Aaron Bolo and welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. Today we're talking to a colorist. Now what's a colorist? According to the dictionary as read by Google, the definition reads, an artist who uses color in a special or skillful way. It's not too far off, but the artist we're talking to applies her art to films, TV, documentaries, and commercials. She's worked with some amazing cinematographers and directors on some really terrific movies. To name a few, Bad Hair, American Pickle, Elysium and Chappie, HBO's Watchmen, the hallucinatory action horror film Mandy, and most recently, she worked on Netflix's Naomi Osaka, which is a beautifully sad and yet hopeful docuseries that announces the unique voice of director Garrett Bradley. It's my pleasure to welcome a true force of color, Andrea Clayback. Welcome, Andrea. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, so before we get started sort of about, you know, your your life and journey to being a colorist, why don't, I, I'd love for you to tell us in your own words what what you do, what a film colorist does. <laughs> well, that's a great question. What do we do? Um, I would say, you know, at its at its most basic, a film colorist would be somebody that, you know, uses color to essentially smooth out uh, the look of any of a narrative of a story. Um, so that could be at the simplest matching, you know, shot to shot um, things that are, that take place at, at disparate times when they're meant to take place at the same time, sort of matching, you know, a rainy day to a sunny day or a uh, slightly different color temperature later in the day to an early part of the day, or sort of a bigger overall, uh, you know, role of, of really developing and creating the look and feel. Uh, of a film or a, a TV show or, uh, you know, a commercial or, or music video, depending on the project, obviously. Um, so I feel like there's definitely a very like macro and a very micro aspect of a colorist and, and what we do. But I, I often say it's kind of like a lot of people know Photoshop or Instagram. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of like Photoshop on steroids, essentially, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Well said. So how how uh, how did you get to where you are, and, and how did you sort of you know, find your way into filmmaking and and find your path to to becoming a colorist? Yeah, I mean, I started my path to to the, you know towards an art form. Um, in, you know, in college, essentially, I uh, took on uh, uh, art school as a foundational aspect. So I went into kind of an overall visual arts um, program at Emily Carr University in Vancouver. Mm. And uh, I started with, you know, basically learning all forms of, I mean, of, of art, drawing and painting and, and photography, kind of going in thinking I was going to be a photographer because that had been sort of the, the craft and art I had been practicing, you know, you know, in high school, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, um, 
but I quickly sort of, you know, through the first year of foundational art, I um, really developed like a, a liking to working in film. And so within, you know, the, the second year program, I was able to sort of like niche into film video, which at the time for me was called integrated media. So I had an opportunity to sort of explore sound art, um, performance art and making films. And uh, through the process of making, you know, short films um, with all the crew and, and student films um, or the students that I was working with, I kind of quickly found my way into the editorial and kind of post-production side. I wasn't really um, a huge fan of being on set uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, so, I mean, of course, you, you know, as a, as a student, you direct your own films and mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. shoot other people's films. And naturally, it made sense. You know, a lot of people say it would have made sense for you to go into cinematography because, I was really coming from the photographic background. I love, you know, shooting still photography. I did a lot of editorial work and that sort of thing. But uh, I just loved the idea of like putting things together in after, you know, getting all that stuff. And then I really, I found my way in my final year of school where I, I just like, just enjoyed that editorial process. Mm -hmm. And when I went out into the world um, after I graduated, I, uh, you know, I naturally became a photographer again <laughs> because that was what I knew to do and and kind of like the most, you know, I, I knew what the value of that was and I could kind of do a job that way. So it took me a few years to find my way into post-production, but I actually, again, took stills on set. I got a number of jobs where I was working, um, you know, on set as a stills photographer or wow. helping out, you know, friends in production, shooting stills for their marketing. You know, I learned that graphic design aspect uh, of things. And then I started editing, you know, people's films and I was trying to get a, a job actually in visual effects. Uh, huh couple of years after because I thought I thought maybe lighting like I really like the idea of lighting and kind of like zoning into you know creating certain looks and didn't really know what that meant and a VFX producer who was looking at my reel said you know I can see you know you're young coming out of school and you don't have like projects on your reel that are you know of, of note right mm-hmm. but I can tell that everything looks a certain way like it's really tied together you've really mm-hmm. done this and she said you know have you ever thought about being a colorist and the time I didn't even know that was a job or was a role that existed to be honest I had worked in film um with film labs and done color timing but I had not seen that as much of the way it was really presented to us was not as much of a creative you know Mm -hmm, role mm -hmm, so I didn't really mm -hmm. think about it as being something I would go into and that kind of like set me going so I did a mentorship actually with a film lab um, learned a lot about color timing, uh, actual wow. physical color timing and, and printer lights. And then I, I took a role with a company um, in post-production when they were doing digital to uh, film transfer, which at the time was, I was right at the, right just before digital intermediate became a thing where we were uh-huh. doing digital grading. It was where, you know, things would be graded digitally, but needed to be um, presented on film for festivals or for release. And so mm-hmm. I was working at this company and learned all about how to get a digital image to film. And so that naturally, that company naturally evolved into a DI facility and uh, they put in a, you know, they wanted to put in a digital grading uh, suite in the middle of the pipeline. And we were doing a bunch of, you know, testing with 
essentially, I always tell the story that I had a science fair of a base light, a luster, a Rizal, and a Pablo in one room. And uh, I got to learn all of them before I was actually a colorist. Wow. Um, and that was at the point where I was like, this, you know, this is, I'm, this, I want to sit in this chair, you know, and the, one of the owners <laughs> of that company was a small independent company who sort of said, yes, yeah, that's your, that's what you should do. And um, so I really kind of, you know, was prepared, but the, when the opportunity kind of came up to, to kind of jump on the, uh, on it, um, and I was able to work with a senior colorist for just a few months, and then he had to leave uh, f- to take on another uh, role somewhere else, and there was a feature film that came to our facility, and they, you know, the, the owners, managers kind of looked at me and said, do you want to do, you wanna do it? <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. You know, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. Right. Always like, say yes. Always say yes always to anyone, yes. to anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. Just do it. Um, and, but I lucked out with, you know, a really, um, a really amazing cinematographer by the name of David Moxness, who, um, you know, he had had a lot of history in science fiction. He shot X-Files for years. He, oh, you wow. know, was kind of a, in the, television and film industry in Vancouver and Canada for quite some time. And mm-hmm. he just was, he was ready to, he was, you know, able to help me. Like it's basically showed me how, how do you color grade a film? What kinds of things do you do? How long does it take? How do you pace yourself? And, mm-hmm. and I, that was, I always say that I was sort of trained by a cinematographer because mm-hmm. I, I learned the, phys, you know, I learned how to use the technology, you know, from the, from the technologists, you know, mm-hmm. film light or resolve or what have you had trained me into using that, but to actually apply it in an artistic way and like to develop a craft really came from the cinematography side. So and then the rest was kind of history after that. I ended up just kind of taking one project, you know, and, and then, mm-hmm. you know, to the next and doing a lot of short films and doing a lot of documentaries and then, you know, kind of found my way. Um, not so much of a niche, but like some specific genres that I was, you know, kind of attracted to. And and well, that sort of made my career. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's fascinating to me because I just want to back up a little bit because, you know, you talked about being a photographer in high school and obviously coming at it as a still photographer. And I'm just curious, what was the first camera, you know, that you, that, did you start shooting on film? What was the first camera that you, that you got and had, who gave that to you? How did you get it? I'm just so curious. Yeah. Oh, that's a, oh, who gave it to me? Well, I remember in high school, so I think it was like grade 10 or 11, you know, we had the, you, in Canada, it's all sort of split up. I remember you to get to grade 11 and you get all this, you get all these the new subjects that sort of appear in front of you that are like amazing. And we happen to have a, a photo lab that's at, you know, and, and like a digital lab and a photo lab and learn, you know, learn the whole darkroom process. And so, I got my hands on the Nikon EM, which is like, I think it's like a wartime small, it was an interesting camera because it was like a more petite uh, version Mm. of what, you know, a 35 mil Nikon camera was at the time. If you were to get a brand new one, they were a little bit bulkier. Mm -hmm. And even Mm. at the time of the, I guess it would have been like forties kind of camera, it was quite small. Um, It was like small, you know, for the hands and Uh which made it feel more modern. Like it felt it sure. felt like a new camera. And so I just, I mean, I just, all I had was like a 50 mil lens and a Nikon and I, that, that I was Nikon forever for, mm-hmm. you know, pretty mm-hmm. much to now. Um, but yeah, that sort of started me on that road, 35 mil, um, 
doing my own processing, figuring out how to like push and pull. I was really, really into that, which is thinking about that now, you know, yeah. it's sort of a form of color grading. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but, but, but on film, it's so much harder. I mean, I think it's really interesting yeah. because I think your work is so impressive and it's so visceral and really unique. Like, like that person said, once upon a time watching your reel, it, there is a thread, there is a voice that you can see in your, in the films that you do and, and the work that you do. And I'm, I'm, so I'm curious, uh, what were there photographers that you were like, Oh, I want to be like this photographer or, 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 you know, influences, or were you just going out and, and shooting? Because I, I really do think that it's like eight, two things, I guess, is that one, having an idea of still photography to me is such a great preparation for narrative filmmaking because you have to mm-hmm. tell a story with one frame. And the other thing is having a darkroom background, a real darkroom background, like you really understand film in a way that I think a lot of people today don't, you know, I don't know if that, if, if you agree or not, but uh, so anyway, that, that's just really, really super fascinating to me. Were there people who inspired you early on? Yeah, you know, and thank you, by the way, that was really nice to hear. I, I think that, I mean, I'd like to think that I, that there is something to that that's unique and special that's sort of, you know, I, I definitely can see, um, I definitely feel like I see images through that lens of, of, of developing film, even mm-hmm. if it's digital and, and how to get it from A to B. I, I definitely spent a lot of time in my early years, just kind of with DPs who are used to film as well. And so mm-hmm. they would speak film language and I would be trying to process, you know, okay, they mean this, I understand what that means in the sort of photochemical sense, but now mm-hmm. I'm trying to apply it in a digital sense. And that, I think that's really informed just even how I like physically touch, you know, my, my control surface. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. for sure. I think early on, I wasn't, you know, I def, I had like a, I did a lot, a lot of kind of art history training and I was quite inspired by films. <laughs> it's been interesting, more painting, I would say, like ah, I did a yeah. lot of work with painting and my, my favorite paint, like I still refer to it often just from that perspective, especially if I'm training people or, or talking about an image. I, I look at Dutch realist painting. Maybe it's because I'm Dutch, you know, I don't know. I part partially Dutch or something. But <laughs> I, I really love those, you know, that era of, uh, of painting from the perspective of just how to look and see light and how mm-hmm. to then translate that into another medium. And I, I, always refer back to that secondarily I think my my colorist you know and photography kind of main inspiration when I was kind of you know figuring it out and picking it up in terms of like visually was a filmmaker by the name of Floria Sigismondi which is very funny because she's she's a Canadian uh, but also Italian and she was making these most viscerally amazing music videos um you know so like as a teenager of watching mtv and you're like what do i want to do with my art um i love painting i like to take photography but what does that mean and i I do feel like you know her just the idea of first of all female director you know Mm -hmm, out there creating mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. like these kind of stunning images and like really kind of and not just kind of disruptive in terms Mm -hmm, of like what she mm -hmm. was doing visually I would say for sure, you know, she was like a very con- contemporary at that time, like somebody that I was looking up towards that was doing wow. something that I was like, I don't know what it is, but I, I want to do something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. So finding my way through photography and doing, like I was saying, push and pull and, and processing and doing all that work in the film, even the stills world, I think I was definitely not necessarily imitating, but trying to definitely develop my own voice through that and like what I could, like push the boundaries of what I could do which I totally believe was inspired by 
her and, and other, you know, filmmakers that I was, you know, in my circle at the time. But I just, you know, thinking about a lot of that, that early, those early days, it was really a lot of her work that I was just surrounded by and feeling like the most inspired by. Yeah. And that's really cool because I, I think I heard you say somewhere where you were like, you know, I, instead of just kind of part of your methodology is to give, you know, eight, 12 different versions of something. And you said, well, you know, it's, you said, I could just give it to you the way it looks, but like, I don't, I, it almost sounds like you want to provoke a reaction, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is right in line with what you're talking about in terms of like wanting to be an artist who sort of pushes and doesn't just yeah. want to give someone, you know, and I think that you can tie that back to what you just said, which I think is so interesting. Uh, and I think it, it shows also in the filmmakers you've worked with. So I, I guess we can get, get to sort of, uh, uh, meeting Neil Blomkamp because it, it feels like those are some of the first really big uh, films that you that you worked on and, and and what I love about that is that he's such a unique filmmaker and and uh, such a unique voice and and his films do have such a look which is driven a lot by his visual effects. I mean, for my money, I don't think there's a filmmaker working who lights VFX. VFX don't sit in movies as well as they do other than his movies. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. pretty unbelievable, like from District mm-hmm. 9 on. So what was that like meeting him and, and how did you how did you come to work with him? Well, like the first time I met Neil was in the elevator in the VFX, uh, like in the building that where my, for the post-production company was that I worked at. And uh, he had an office um, at a VFX company that he sort of was working within and part of. And it was kind of, I'm pretty sure it was during the District 9 kind of post-production time period where he would have been maybe coming back from New Zealand or maybe, you know, taking a break or going, I don't remember exactly. I shouldn't say anything about his schedule. I don't remember, but I do remember it was just before district nine came out. Wow. And, and it was a friend of mine and the, the a producer in the elevator that had worked with him at a previous facility. Cause he used to work in visual effects. Like he was, a, you know, the effects artist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but everybody knew him because they knew he was a, also a filmmaker and he would, you know, take over the, the, uh, you know, the garage of the, the post-production studio to shoot, a short film and people so everybody knew knew about neil for for years because he was like really just like active creator mm-hmm. um and and this producer just said oh oh hey neil how's it nice to meet you oh, oh andrew this is oh yeah and i was like oh cool like, great and i didn't really like think about it and then of course the movie came out and then a couple of you know months later um he was back. I saw him again. And he actually, it was funny because the elevator opened and he walked out into the, into, I was standing in the lobby and he happened to walk out and be like, cool. Like, I, I just, I just wanted, I knew that this place was here, but I, <laughs> I <didn't really> <laughs> um, so we kind of had these couple of chance meetings. And then, you know, when Elysium started um, pre-production, there was a Vancouver component and a Mexico city component where in terms of where they were shooting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, uh, the VFX company, of course, in Vancouver Image Engine, which was doing, you know, basically was the big, the major vendor, the primary kind of VFX collaborator with him, mm-hmm. which I think is mostly responsible for a, a lot of the way the aesthetic of those effects um, mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working with them on other projects as well. And so it sort of was a nice kind of, um, and the post-production supervisor who was, you know, a friend of ours, uh, the company that we were working for kind of, we, this sort of just kind of made it all work and said, you know, we get Andrea in a room with Neil and, you know, hopefully they will just, we'll see if that works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because he is like, I have a very specific vision. Um, he's not like too, too keen to, 
overly, you know, grade stuff and get mm-hmm. things a certain, you know, he wanted mm-hmm. to be like, I, I'm making this film and I want to make sure I have a partner that's like, can see what I want Mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. produce mm-hmm. um and it was going to be a long haul like a couple of years basically to kind of go from the the pre-production through to through vfx mm-hmm. having the preview of visual effects and then to the, the final stage of obviously finishing the film and then finishing it on all the the major platforms like imax and all of that so it was kind of a, you know definitely a big undertaking mm-hmm. and like you said i mean it wasn't i hadn't done anything uh, um in the 200 million dollar category yet <laughs> so it was definitely a you know definitely a step up uh from some of the in terms of budget and, and definitely overall scope um but he you know it was funny like we met and in, initially really kind of connected you know kind of was able to sort of like you know uh uh, you know, do what we did a test and, you know, he was able to get what he needed to see. And, and uh, I really just kind of understood, you know, his, his main visual or vision was that he wanted it to have, to be honest. He didn't want mm-hmm. to go in there and grade it into submission, you know, he and, and making something like Elysium look real, you know, when you think about that, that's kind of funny. It's futuristic and mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. flying, flying vehicles, um, there's no aliens in this one, mm-hmm, but uh, mm-hmm. so very grounded in reality in terms of what could be a possible reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean? Right. And so because it took me a little bit to figure out how how I would approach it so that, you know, we were grading like we were getting because there's obvious things that needed to be color corrected. Mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. also what kind of a look would we apply that would still keep that honesty? And I think, you know, it, for for whatever reason, how it worked out we ended up speaking the same language and I was able to sort of like, you know, extract um, something that really worked for him. And he just liked to be able to trust. I think it's, you know, if you see a lot of his films and the teams that he's worked with, he often works with the same editor mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and cinematographer. And I think he's, you know, not most people are like this, but he's definitely one that likes to kind of create uh, a team that he can trust. Mm-hmm, and I'm, mm-hmm. that's my, my main focus is sort of trust building and, and making sure that I'm here to support not like step in and like I'm the colorist, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, well, it's I think like a, that, it's a family, yeah. you know I mean? It is yeah. a family. I mean, I think when it's working really well, filmmaking is, it becomes, it's a life experience as much as it is a movie experience. Right. I mean, when you're having yeah. fun, uh, uh, and I'm just curious too, like, you know, um, did you think, cause you said it, I mean, obviously you'd probably done visual effects beforehand, but this is obviously like crash master's class to a certain degree in VFX. Uh, uh, it, yeah. do you think you, you learn, you know, sort of what did you learn from Neil and his VFX team about VFX that you then sort of take forward? And do you, you know, uh, uh, you know, because, because to me, it's like, I, like you said, it's honest. It's, I just love how, you know, for instance, I don't know if this is actually true, but I just wanted to ask you, it's sort of another mm-hmm. question is in Chappie, it felt to me like he did what he did on district nine, which is that Charlto as Chappie was actually there. And then they wrote him out. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because that's why it looks so good. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, Chappie, yeah. I mean, Charlotte is Chappie and, right. you know, like I spent, it's really, it's a really funny, this is a really funny side story that I, I met Charlotte, you know, in LA when I moved uh, a couple of years ago and weirdly, um, our children were in the same preschool together, which wow. was really funny, um, which was a very funny chance. But when we met, I said, <laughs> I've seen you for like, I've seen you for so long. And he looked at me like, I know, <laughs> um, but I literally like he, you know, he was in every frame. Anytime you ever saw Chappie in the film, obviously he's the main character and it's weird to be a main character who never appears like he mm. as an actor. He actually appears in the film as a very uh, side sort of nugget. 
character in one scene, you know, towards the end, but he as himself does mm. like Andy Circus, you know, in Lord right. of the Rings, right? It, yeah, who gets his his moment there uh, as Smeagol, <laughs> but like you know, Charlton never appeared in Chappie, but he was yeah shot in a full you know one of yeah. those VFX gray suits with you know a pair of cargo shorts, um, and that uh, we had some really good sort of befores and afters where you'd see him literally you know doing his thing, and mm. we would you know wipe, and he's completely replaced by Chappie, which is to me like i was still blown away the whole time i was working on that film like how um they easily replaced him how he looked completely Mm. like in you know in the set at all times like you Mm. you never Mm. get a feeling in that film at least from my perspective and who had been look staring at images like Mm -hmm. watching charlto do the you know give his performance and then like you know a few weeks later or months i should say in some cases then Chappie appears. I remember that day when Chris Harvey, who's the VFX super, came in. We looked at, you know, a bunch of the first the first look, you know, of really having him like in mm-hmm. close to final VFX. And it was just this magical moment where he literally comes alive. And I wow. think that, you know, it's it's really those are really some special, special experiences. I think in in on Elysium, yeah, like you're saying, masterclass. Like I think we were talking like 2,500 VFX, um, wow, wow, VFX shots in a film, um, which you know, for very cutty, you know, um, uh, action film, maybe that's I don't know half of the film, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think the idea of that it becomes complicated because I felt what I learned on the process is a lot of the times that what we do as filmmakers or colorists or cinematographers is we tend to hide uh, flaws in, in shadows, right? We tend to kind of do that, and that that creates like a a look and a feel and a sort of fantasy. And what I figured out what is real versus fantasy is that fantasy is actually where there are things you can't see, and you make it up for yourself. You kind of fill the gap. Absence. So you can use black and shadow and like bold color, i.e., you know, films like Mandy mm, to mm, create a, mm. a fantastic experience right. yeah. so that you as the viewer are immersed in a different way, like you're kind of going in your own your own mind a little bit to sort of fill mm-hmm. the gaps. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about real and honest without looking like a reality show nothing against reality shows but for a, of course a big cinematic feature <laughs> film we don't that wasn't the idea um <laughs> how do you keep cinema but you make it feel like what would it look like if you were standing there and we often right. have this conversation of like I'm Mad Damon I'm standing in I'm standing in the field what does it look like and um and uh so I think that like to me what I really uh, like came up with was really re- it was a re- revealing like we could see everything there's no not that there's no black because we definitely dip to a normal like um photo real black level mm-hmm. um but we are we were always revealing stuff that was in the shadows or making it there and i think in visual effects that's key for them to see where you're going to go because then they can focus on those details and make them look smoother and more real and mm-hmm. not do all that work and then for that to get all crushed out or darkened later mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. it required a very I mean, I became very, very close, close uh, in collaborator with the VFX producer and uh, supervisor and the lead compositor on that show. We basically spent, you know, months and months and months together mm-hmm. reviewing their stuff. I mean, setting up how we were going to even like place the show in a certain color space, like mm-hmm. what it would look like projected, um, what I was going to be doing technically to to sort of manipulate the image and what the look is that Neil. And how are we going to? So, I mean, it was so much like 
it really was, like you said, a masterclass for me. I basically was immersed in visual effects mm. um, for about a year there because, wow. you know, I understand the whole pipeline. Okay, when does this happen? What's important for the compositor? You know, where do they do this lighting thing? You know, and then when we moved on to Chappie, because that kind of came right after um, we had finished Elysium and then we kind of like kind of rolled into the next project. We then went in the next level with it, what we could do in terms wow. of previewing color in visual effects, creating looks specific to scenes. Like in Elysium, mm -hmm. we had more of a show overall look that we started mm -hmm. with and it evolved over time. But VFX and I always kind of had a bit of a back and forth on that. Whereas when we got into Chappie, we were like completely a one team, even though we were technically two separate companies. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we were very much like, okay, I'm going to, this is the scene number. This is the name. Chappie's in this the room. Okay, well, we want to do this with the certain red color. So I'm going to make a specific look for that scene. And then it goes into the pipeline. And so I, I know a little bit too much about uh, mm, the inner yeah. workings of a VFX yeah, studio, but yeah. I, but it really helped me to understand like what they, you know, often don't know about what happens in post-production and not from a knowledge base, but just like the experience of like, why would you, you know, why would you crush the black or why would you take this? They're like, Oh great. I did this, all this detail. And then I go watch my movie and, you know, mm -hmm. finally, and it, that's all gone, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think, it was nice for me to read, like, you know, gain their their trust and respect and and then work with them of like, what is what you like? And then have Neil be in on some of those sessions to say, I don't I don't care about that. <laughs> like, that's fine that they care about that. But th this I actually want it to look like this. And then they'd have a conversation about like, OK, great. OK, so moving forward, we will not worry about this particular detail. Right. But in most cases, he would lean, it would lean more towards the visual effects. Like what did the visual effects supervisor want to do? What mm -hmm. was that vision and how they were withholding it? I was more of the support. Like how do I make sure that you see what you're, you want to see and how do we make sure it looks like that at the end? And on Elysium, I think our last color grade session was like, was about 15 minutes. And we had the, the <laughs> film had been graded for like, you know, uh, weeks basically and we were dropped we like the day before we delivered I think we dropped in one shot um and he came in walked in and we were like yeah okay good looks good okay you know and it had just been like what he approved over at the VFX studio and it looked exactly the same in in DI and we watched it in the scene and we were like yep okay great okay we finished that giant movie in 15 minutes that you kind of felt like that but uh right. <laughs> You know, that you kind of have to, I, I did a lot of talks about Elysium in the process that you really, really had to like drag it out over, you know, mm -hmm. instead of a four to, to six week color grade, you know, where it's kind of intensive and you're trying to come up the look. We started that look in pre-production and, and mm -hmm. we developed it and evolved it over the course of that year and a half where they shot and then all the VFX happened. By the time we were really in proper final color, um, it was kind of unique at the time to do that. Uh, we were, we were done, you know, we mm -hmm. had basically mm -hmm. just had to like check things. They would come in. We might evolve things there was a couple scenes we changed once you know we saw them all it all kind of cut together mm -hmm. but for the most part we didn't you know the creative was like front loaded you know which I think is really key for VFX heavy shows and mm -hmm. I think I've taken that from that is the main thing I've taken forward for, on every show even if it's not a ton of VFX if there is VFX I'm always like the colorist that's like I want to talk to the VFX producer or the right. supervisor and make sure that you know we that they're in tune with what we're going to do and I know what they what they need you know and right. I think that's really important like you said to make visual effects that look the way they do in his films I think that was a, a key to just kind of maintaining um the the um integrity you know mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. they were producing so. And, and I also think it speaks to 
you know, the fact that obviously, you know, I think so often nowadays, you know, film, so many things are an afterthought in filmmaking. And, and sort of what you're talking about is the Mount Olympus of filmmaking, which is a filmmaker who is bringing everyone into the process from day one. And the other thing I, I kind of want people to know about you as a film colorist and colorist in general is that you're no different than a production designer or a cinematographer in terms of your contributions and your collaborations with filmmakers and artists. And it's like, it's not just the person, oh, here it is. You know, I think in an interview you said uh, I, that it took a while for you to start before you were getting scripts to read. And you think about mm-hmm. that and you go, what, what do you, what, how can everyone should be reading the script? You know? Yeah. And I just think that's, that's really, that's, speaks to not just VFX films, but also in my opinion, how how all films should be made is that everybody should be, everybody's working on the film should be involved in the film, right? I mean, that feels to me like something that's not done enough. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, Colorist has been kind of an interesting role. I mean, to this day, there's, there's, we have our own little unique awards, uh, you know, so, you know, air, um, events for color grading and, mm. and achievement in color grading, but it's not, it's, it's taken a long time for that to be kind of considered, its own art form. And mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely some filmmakers and sort of school of thought where they totally hundred percent believe in that is like, that's part, that's the, this sort of finishing of the film is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's others, I think where it's still much more pure to the cinematography and that, that mm-hmm. colorists, uh, the color grading process is more of an extension of cinematography, which I would hundred percent agree with. Sure. Um, but then, you know, figuring out where the balance is between what a colorist can give to a project and and um, not necessarily your boundaries, but where you sort of go, you know, you're you're leaning on the cinematographer or the director to really take it in the where they want it to go. I think that's what's like to me. That's like the fun, uh, the most intriguing part of what I do is figuring out on each project and each kind of creative team. It's like, okay, where do I, you know, where am I going to fit in here, and how can mm-hmm. I contribute without, you know, like working alongside softly to support, but allow, you know, some kind of insight as well that Mm -hmm. might, might help drive story or help with a certain tone or feeling. Um, I think that that's, to me, that's where I often get, I think, hired on certain projects for that reason, Mm -hmm. because I definitely, that's the approach I'd I'd prefer, like like I like to take, like coming in as a partner in some way, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in each one, sort of figuring out where, what that means. It's not straightforward, right? So I think it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every every film is. I heard John C. Riley one time in a podcast say every film is a custom job. You know, you can't, it's totally. it's yeah. not it's you it's not widgets. It's it, it's no. people. It's people. It's yeah. story. It's it's a, it's a completely mystical, strange thing. Just as much as meeting strangers or you know all that kind of uh, yeah. uh, stuff. Like the overused word organic, but it is. It is that. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I wanted to get to. Um, I wanted to talk to you about working on the profit. Um, uh, the the animated film because I, I find it interesting that you've also worked in animation and and I and when I was kind of doing a little bit of research you know I found this thing that you know in comics uh, in the old days when people were painting hand painting comics they would say yeah. a colorist is responsible for adding color to black and white line art and I just I was, so what was the what was your process on the profit and how did you how did that how did that project come to be how- oh I love that that's a great one yeah um, yeah it's good you know, especially especially when you're like you know this is off topic but going to like when you grade black and white films which is you know comes up here and there when you're working and people say like what did you have to do it's like it's actually yeah um, a a lot (laughs) a lot um shockingly but 
Yeah, I mean, profit again. It's one of the, it's another one of those sort of like really special to my heart projects. It was uh, directed by Roger Allers, who directed The Lion King, or he's one of the directors on The Lion King. Oh, the original and, on the uh, yeah. wow, 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 wow. Yes. So it's real two D, yeah. real two, because it because it also has that beautiful classical look, which I love. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, he's gone on to do a lot of things he was involved in, but you know, the the whole process of creating and writing, he had been on. I think, you know, a few, quite a few Disney films before that Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. So that whole era mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Disney movies, which to me as a, you know, I, you know, Lion King was like, as a little kid, right. was like my, like, I, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of a funny story because uh, my initial, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say probably from like 10 to, to 15 or so was... I wanted to be an an animator, like a cell animator. I had I had this dream of like getting a Lion King cell and anim- you know an animation of like just cell, and I was gonna have it. It was just very weird. Like I don't know, but it's just interesting that that yeah, was kind yeah. of that attracted me that I wanted to color and create films in that way. Um, wow, not really wow. thinking about it, and I was I was obsessed with that movie. So when when this project came across to me. Um, that it was going to be the director of the lion king i kind of like had a moment of like <laughs> should i finish now like should this be the end like do i move on um i mean like and to the point where and and people said that too like an animation because there's a lot of you know colorists that fo- they don't specialize and focus in animation mm. and you know um i've only had the opportunity to do a few i've done a few short films and projects and obviously like working in visual effects you kind of develop that it's similar because it's like created all in cg and but then you know because like you said the profit is it's very much like a 2d experience you know Mm. um and that one was really interesting because it was essentially you know eight poems that were translated into an animated by different animators and sort of in that we call it like the fantasia style where you're essentially seeing oh yes 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 that's right different styles um, representing one of the, you know, one of each poem um, in the Kalilijabran's The Prophet. Um, mm. Basically, it's sort of like a, uh, they didn't go with all every poem, I think, in the end, but there's there ended up being eight. So like on death, on love, on mm-hmm, marriage, mm-hmm. on working, um, on eating. Um, so they're, you know, basically the key ones. <laughs> and um, then his, he, you know, he, what he directed was how to take all of those, you know, um, and then tie them into this kind of um, this kind of working storyline that that makes it one whole film. Hmm. And but then also working closely with all of those animators, and then the looks they're so disparate. Like each hmm. of those individual films are their own thing. Like they're completely different. So how do you tie those together without kind of compromising again the integrity of those animations? Right. right the color right, right. choices and all of the things that they've done to just be like, this is my piece. This is like on love. Boom. Like this is what it looks like. And right. um, some of the most stunning imagery you've ever seen, you're thinking like, this is incredible. How are we going to, how, how is this going to cut back to this very two dimensional kind of right. like classic animation? Mm. And so a lot of what I, what I did on that project was to work with Roger to, to sort of, you know, do to work on those transitions and to sort of, you know, pick out certain colors from those uh, individual poem animations and and tweak them to a certain you know to kind of like define a palette and then to like work that into each segment and and uh you know working really like you would classically colorist you know in Mm -hmm. some cases we had mats so we would break the animated you know frames into multiple layers and have access to certain colors and you know certain certain backgrounds or foreground elements you know we could grade those separately so it's more technically um 
intense, I guess, in terms mm-hmm, of like the grade mm-hmm. process, which it would be in animation. You're often, you have access to almost all the layers. Like, why wouldn't you? Right, um, right, right, but a lot right. of people say, you know, why would you need to? Don't Can't you just fix that? you know, in the animated animation side, like, wouldn't you just do that in the animation? It's like, you would, but there's a point when you, when it comes, you're still cutting the film right? and putting it together. And there's a point when you put things together that, that you need, you will need to do some kind of tweak and change. Sometimes it's extreme. Sometimes, like you said, you, we create something and they're like, Ooh, I love, I've never thought of it that way because we created that animated image from scratch and we developed it to this point and then you just came in totally left field and changed that color to purple and now I'm like I'm going to rethink my whole thing wow and it's quite fast like the way that we work now in terms of you know the DI process or the color grading it's like you could change one color across the whole film basically instantly Hmm. rather than going back and re-rendering you know like saving that for later Mm -hmm. can be um, a strategy so in that case you know a lot of the times that I did with Roger was it was amazing like I remember the conversations we would have where he was like likening a moment we were doing to like oh remember when we you know in Lion King when we were trying to do a night scene with Simba and like Simba came out purple and we were all like why is he purple and and you know that it was like I, you know, I, my mind was like, like, I can't believe I'm sitting here. Um, just like, what's happening? <laughs> You're like, act like you've been here before. Act like you've been here before. <laughs> like, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but it was, it was really cool. I mean, we, it took us, it was interesting because we actually had to, um, develop a language at the very beginning because there were certain words that we you know generally use or I guess I was using in terms of like color grading that were more specific in animation to other things I would say like tonally and he's Mm -hmm. like okay so tone to me though when we talk about tone it's actually sort of like exactly a certain value of gray or like Uh, the density of a color uh. And I was like, ah, see, I'm talking about it more of like, what's the tone? (laughs) What's the vibe? What's the, okay. All right. Right. So he's like, what do you mean about that? And it was, to me, that was really fascinating to kind of like get into his world and understand like that really strong from scratch, like literally drawing, drawing a figure and then painting it and getting to, okay, well that, does that look like night now that it's purple? You know, that process is so, um, it's just so intriguing to me because of right. how we do things is so different. And so it really, like, I'd say like, we really got along well with the first week or so half of me was just like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm sitting here. And then the other half was just like, just learning constantly, you know, and trying to wow. not necessarily adjust, but just pick up like little things, you know, subtle things he was saying. And then we just developed our own language that, you know, he picked up from what I was saying. And then, you know, we got really into it. I remember again, our last session was looking at the last shot of that film. And it's, I think we took two hours. Um, wow. So the opposite of Neil, where he's really getting into like specific details and zoning this feeling. And of course it's the last moment of the film. So we wanted to, to have a, a certain experience when it ends, mm-hmm. you know, you want to, mm-hmm. you've just been through all of these poems and you want to, you want to leave with a certain note. And I think, um, that was a completely different experience. I kind of went from Chappie into that film actually, which is really funny. And so it was just really, um, or sorry, Elysium Prophet Chappie. That's how how it went. And so I was kind of in the middle of, you know, the sci-fi really intense visual effects world. And then to be working on something that's much more like classical organic and, and really like just trying to like tweak these things in and out. Um, It just couldn't be in one way more opposite in terms of scope and, and style or approach to color, which is really, really cool. 
Wow, what's well, an amazing film? Anybody who's not seen it's Khalil Gibran's The Prophet because there's there are lots of prophets, but you can watch yeah. it on Netflix. It's it's really an amazing, unique piece of animation because I think today nowadays, you know, the Pixar stuff is wonderful, but a lot of it now we we're now in this age of everything looks like that, you know, yeah. and 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 The Prophet does it just has its own thing, you know, it's really mm-hmm. it's really specific. So I really recommend people to watch it. Uh, I now I I read uh, somewhere that you. You also you worked on Watchmen, uh, yeah. uh, and you, you 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 talked about the look development of working on Watchmen. So, did you work with uh, uh, Damon Lindelof, or was it Nicole Cassell, or the DPs? Who did you work the most with? Yeah, I mean that one is is an interesting one. I had um, so I have a good relationship with uh, Greg Middleton, who's a DP that you know took on. Um, I can't remember how many of those episodes, but you know, he did the main, the, the, the major episode with the, the black and white episode as well. Oh, as wow. Like, wow. That's his. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so he was kind of le- like, he kind of bit brought onto the project um, with uh, Nicole Cassell and, and they sort of had been a team had worked on um, series before. And he was really, you know, my, my participation in that was helping him to really like establish and root a specific look that would, um, that he could use, you know, during shooting and then can use to communicate across. Obviously, other DPs, you know, came on to the project. And so it was like them really, you know, creating a team and developing a language of like what they were going to shoot. Each mm-hmm. each episode is really different in terms of how it looks to a certain degree. But there was sort of an overall um, look and feel that he was just really wanting to kind of like seal in at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it obviously evolved. But, you know, I didn't I wasn't, you know, part of the the sort of like finishing grades on each episode my role was really to sort of like preview and and see this you know these different a few different approaches mm-hmm. um so identifying some specific things um like where there was essentially like the the, the show within the show um what does that look like how does right. how does that relate to the overall look and and really just kind of like helping him to kind of with what he had in mind like giving him those sort of like goalposts of look and aesthetic that he you know he really wanted to have there from day one Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so you know he and I I, again we've worked on a number of projects together and and we have again that really good sort of like back and forth the sort of shorthand and and so he was like you know would you work with you know work on this aspect with me which Mm -hmm. I love doing to be honest it's it's kind of funny I mean being in look development colorist is one way is kind of amazing because you get to kind of explore a bunch of different directions without having to have the responsibility of pulling it off. Right, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I always say, you know, let's, you know, sure. I mean, because to me, all of those parts are, are valuable and sometimes mm-hmm. having a, somebody different, you know, along the process, like say at the beginning or in the visual effects or at the, at the very end, um, you, you, you see different things. So I think mm-hmm. it, it really lends to um, a more like complex and like in, in, intriguing look, I think in Watchmen, mm-hmm. I think that was part of how that that show actually finally came to be was because there was this like strong rooting of a certain aesthetic mm-hmm. and then having two or three different types of, you know, obviously cinematographers and directors yeah. um, on it, but, you know, having even just two or three colorists sort of take a hit, take a shot at it. I think, that's that's really interesting. I'd love to like explore more of that in the future. I'm working on that with a few other projects coming up where there is a few people working on it. And it's yeah. to me, it's fascinating because it's not just yes, you want to have a cohesive vision of one person kind of championing, but I think you you know there people everybody sees things differently, and so mm-hmm. to not take 
advantage of that if you're working in a team where, you know, somebody might be, you know, like editors, there's editors who are very good at action cutting, but not great at, or they will, you know, say, I'm not going to do the drama or the, the romance. And right. and so you would have a couple of editors on a show and they're, they're both working towards the same goal. Um, but they, they're particularly good at this or that. I think moving in the future, colorists could also work um, in tandem like that. I think it, I've worked on a series where I've, I've shared episodes back and forth with different colorists. And I do think that they, they develop and they evolve. And it's not that every episode looks different. It's that, you know, you, somebody might do something differently in episode two and then three, you're like, oh, that was cool. Okay. I'm going to take some of that and I'm going to build on that. So by the time you get to the end, you've had this like evolved um, sort of look, which I think to me is like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to do that? You yeah. Know, no, no it's, especially in series, because I think it's not necessarily like you said, like a, like a different look, but it's, it's really, okay, we're telling a different story this episode or mm-hmm. it's a different mood. I mean, Watchmen is such a perfect example because that black and white episode just blows your mind. I mean, it, the show's already stunning in terms yeah. of the way it uses color, but that black and white episode is really, you know, it, it, it's really, it, it's a proper black and white <laughs> episode yes. in yeah. terms of how, how visceral it is and wonderful. So that is a really awesome uh, thing that you just sort of pointed out about the ability to sort of use different storytellers for, uh, uh, to, to sort of tell a story in, in, at different on different layers and levels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, I know, I don't want to take. I know you're giving us a lot. Of, you're giving me a lot of your time, but I, no, I wanted. Yeah. Uh, uh, I wanted to just no rush, kind of. No rush. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, famous last words. Uh, <laughs> the, Four hours later. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to, um, you know, because I wanted to talk about. Mandy, obviously, because uh, I, I love Clearly, the movie. Of course, <laughs> yeah, I love I love the movie though. I mean, I love I love it for many, many, many reasons. I mean, I think a lot of people. I had Brett Bachman on here last last week, and we had a really great talk. The editor of Mandy, and I had Benjamin Loban even before that. And and I just because to me the movie is so unique uh, from Panos's vision to to the performances and obviously something that everybody talks about is the look of the film and the color palette of the film. And so I wanted to, to talk to you about, you know, how the project came to be. Uh, uh, and I, I just wanted to say, I rewatched it again last night, just cause why can how can you not put that movie on and not watch it? But I, it's funny because everyone talks about the reds and the blues and the dark of the film, which are wonderful. But I think in watching it for like the third or fourth times, the, some of the daytime stuff is actually my favorite. You know, with mm. with Mandy and the stuff of her in the convenience store and Bill Duke and Nick Cage, it's so cool. But uh, anyway, before I digress, so tell us how you came to work on Mandy and and how you developed that look with Panos and Benjamin. Yeah, so you know, I mean, Ben's story on that, and I think you know, you you chatted with him a little bit about that. Um, but to sort of recap a bit, is that you know, the the film itself was initially kind of had been written and developed for many years before um and panos's film beyond the black rainbow which had kind of was able they were able to shoot that um uh before they shot mandy and norm lee who was a cinematographer that i had worked with as as well as i think ben is a good friend of um was initially kind of a, you know ma- master developer in terms of the, the look and feel mm-hmm. and how that was going to be shot um and when it came time to actually shoot the film unfortunately norm wasn't able to shoot the movie um but then (laughs) but ben was able to shoot the movie um and so which i mean i don't think it you know you could have had a better uh in terms of you know the creative aspect and and a sort of combination of of panos and and norm and then who you would trust you know trustingly pass on to a project 
I don't think you had, I could have had a better person to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, ben and I had worked on his first feature, Hello Destroyer. Oh yes. Which, uh, is, fat, among, which is wonderful. Yeah. And among other, um, another film, we, we sort of did, a, <laughs> did a few sort of sort of small projects. Uh, you know, we did a project, uh, another feature, and then we did, you know, it was kind of like our lead up to this first, his first feature that he really wanted to, you know, make sure it looked exactly how we wanted and so we, we did some test work together um, and then and then we really took on Hello Destroyer. And that was kind of our, I would say, probably our third or fourth co- collaboration at the point. I can't even remember now. Time is wow. time has drifted past. Right, um, right. And so, you know, it was interesting because of just the sort of way things kind of worked out, the, the way that, you know, we assume we're going to work together and this is going to happen. And, um, and he, now he's on this crazy project called Mandy. And I was like, Oh yeah, I know about it. You know, we we know about it. Um, And, but he was like up, had to be up and running on this film right away because obviously they had gone, you know, there's basically, I think nearing production. I think it was two Um, weeks. He told me it was two weeks. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to speak for him, but I remember it being like very, very quick and, and, and fast. And so, um, you know, naturally for us, we had just, just kind of come off, I think, working together maybe within the, the year or so, I think, of that time. I think the time period was roughly a year we were at TIFF with Hello Destroyer, and then Mandy would have been like the following, in that following year. And uh, so, you know, we were kind of like, cool, okay, what are we going to do? How is this going to work? Kind of got into some specifics about it. And he said, well, Panos obviously has some really strong ideas. And I, you know, was able to look at the script. Um, he went off to, to Belgium and you know we talked about what we we're going to do and um and then there was of course like a stuff all that happens you know um <laughs> certain things that that have to be done in Belgium and things that get to be done in Canada and so mm-hmm, you know I was mm-hmm. in Vancouver at the time and so I think they basically the film was was angling towards Sundance uh that yeah that first that first sort of release that it came out and that fall, um, when they came back from shooting and they were, had been cutting it and there was all this stuff going on, we said, okay, like, let's do, you know, let's jump in and do like a look session um, with the film. And to me, a look session is really like taking just, you know, a selection of shots. It's not even necessarily scenes. It's sort of like, let's just kind of play, um, which we really needed to do, I think, in the case of Panos, because he had very specific vision for what it wanted, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like articulated in like, it's exactly this and here's the image I want. It was like, I want, you know, I have, it's very visceral. I want this color to be more prevalent. I want this to be, have this texture. We came up with a certain grain as you, you know, a lot of people have been asking me about that lately. Like, did you, did you do the grain? So there was like mm-hmm. a grain and texture that was kind of built into the color. Mm-hmm. We like just had to figure it out. You know, it was like one of those things where, and I remember seeing this stuff originally and being like, oh God, like this is going to be really intense. Like, I don't know, but, you know, just because, you know, you know what it's about, you know, you know, right, what's with right. the, in the script and you're like, oh, this is going to be, I, I usually get immersed, you know, emotionally. Sure, sure, film, sure, so. sure kind of like preparing myself and our first session together we had you know Ben and Panos you know come in and it was like the funnest thing I have ever done I mean we we started with Ben you know I know Ben's sort of aesthetic you know what he was I know him so I was like going that way and then Panos was like okay turn turn the knob turn the knob (laughs) and then it was kind of like this more 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 to the point where Ben and I looked at each other and we I I, we we sort of were like okay this is gonna this is going somewhere let's just let it, you know, let it happen. But we kind of laughed at the fact that how different it was from, mm. you know, our last project together, obviously, Hello Destroyer to Mandy. Yes, there are some similarities in cinematography, but from a color standpoint, oh yeah, um, 
very different. And so an approach in general. And, and so kind of getting that out of, you know, that experience with Panos and Ben together was really fun because it was just like, they had obviously developed like a really good, you know, um, you know, working relationship over, over the shooting of the project. So they had all these great stories. And then we were really kind of like pushing and pulling and trying to come up with all these crazy, these crazy looks that Panos was like, it's in my mind. I need it to be seen. And we mm-hmm. had been talking about mm-hmm. it along the way, but coming to the actual the task at hand was, you know, I was expecting it to be more, I would say more challenging. It wasn't that it wasn't hard coming with it, but I remember it being like just a really fun, joyful experience of getting mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. result and not necessarily taking the, the sort of weight and the heaviness of some of the themes in the film of sort of more taking it from like a, a theoretical standpoint and, mm-hmm. a, and a sort of let's create a feel with this. Um, and then you, so we, we took a bit of a break from that. And then there was like a, a week in between, I think, and then another, another four or five days. And I basically, at that point, we were half, like a, a majority of the film was being finished in Belgium. And so Ben, you know, left, he was going to shoot something else. And he was in uh, with another colorist in Belgium and they were working on some stuff and we were able to collaborate. And then mm. we basically got, a scene back so it was similar to sort of like the Watchmen a different experience but um I feel like I was a lot more immersed in this one in terms Mm -hmm, of like the mm -hmm. final the final look but um you know where I had then Panos on my side you know in Vancouver and and Ben in in in, I think it was he was in Belgium Mm -hmm. and basically we were having these phone calls and we're staring at the same thing you know sharing projects back and forth and Panos was like we were talking about it like it was like our we were um bouncing a ball back and forth kind of thing like okay how about this okay how about this you know and again which I think lends to some of the extremity because we were kind of layering and pushing on each other's sort of like boundaries you know like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm okay with it you know and but I do remember a key point where you know and there's a there's a very um memorable scene again it's a night scene it's not the daytime stuff again I'm with you on that I love that stuff I love like the idea of like bringing out, you know, these yellows yes. and these blues. Yeah. And then yeah. like a lot of that was this texture, you know, mm-hmm. was, was playing in like how much texture do we work into this, this look. Um, and you know, that stuff of her in the window, like the, it's one of the shots that I always show. Cause it's one of the first things I ever yes, saw. Yes. Yes. And you it's know? also, it's also, I have to say that the whole film to me is about texture. It's, it, it's the, the quality of the window, the almost like the sort of frosted window. And, and there's also those frosted windows in the store and, and her hair and everything. Every detail, uh, you know, in the film, in the world of the film, I feel like lends itself to the texture that you guys found with the color. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it, to me, it was like such a layered process. And I re- but I remember this part, the sequence where, you know, <laughs> again, no spoilers, this movie's been out for a while, but there's a, yeah. there's a point where, you know, Nick Cage is walking into a sort of like um, temple kind of uh-huh. cave, uh, area and, and things are on fire um, and he is coming for his sort of final revenge. And uh, the, it, what's interesting about the lighting in that is essentially like a red light that is flashing on mm-hmm. and then it goes dark mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it flashes up and we see Nick Cage and then mm-hmm. it goes down and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's sort of, it was, a, it's a, it was a really interesting from an editorial standpoint, I think, to like make that scene have the intensity because yeah. you literally as an, a, a viewer are in darkness, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and you don't want it when that light comes back on, you don't know where you're going to be and it could be anywhere you know which I, th- I thought was just like so in uh, amazing and I remember in that just trying to he was like push more we, like more more I don't want it to be this red color let's like let's you know let's go like we make it magenta and, and when you have only one color like literally a channel like one channel of color and you're trying to push it one direction it, there's a point where it doesn't it kind of hits a point and it's sort of stuck 
Right. I right. Remember, remember having a pause and thinking like, okay. And that, that's where my like film processing mind came into play. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm going to just, I'm going to do a total channel mix thing. And I'm going to miss, I got, I got to, I got to get purple into this image. And then we, and he's like, uh, yeah, I, I said like, so it's going to go blue. And he's like, yes. You know, and I remember that <laughs> moment of being like, this is crazy, but like you never, would, but it was so, um, again, like I said, it was so fun. And yeah. I remember, I just remember like having those moments of being like, oh, I just picked that out of this like experience. Like how would I approach this in a different way? Because it was something, it was a challenge I'd now not really ever had, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. so it was uh, to me that like, again, you always have these little memorable experiences, but it was just, again, similarly where I didn't have to have the full response responsibility of, you know, fully carrying it through all. I would say like they had the whole film. It wasn't like, sure, um, sure. We weren't doing that, but I think it was, it was really this combination of, you know, you know, we had this me, I had the, the two of them together at the very beginning. And I think that was like where these things meshed and we kind of bounce these ideas off. And then when we separated, it was neat to have this kind of like back and forth um, creatively and, you know, what culminated in eventually what the film ends up looking like, which I think is, is unique, very unique uh, yeah. in its own to itself as well as to me, I believe it firmly it's Panos, entirely Panos. Like even Ben will, I think will say that too. It's like, this just, he's, Sure. It's all him, you know, but I think, you know, having those, those different kind of eyes on it and the sort of approaches and it takes culminated in, in what it became Mandy. So. Absolutely. And also just, just hearing that, you know, Panos is, has the, has the confidence in his own vision to invite you and Ben into it in a way that, you know, you're not threatened by that. It's no, no, let's, let's try to be as free as we can with it. It's like, there's great stories about Scorsese. I interviewed uh, uh, Eric Roth, uh, the screenwriter who's writing his new Western. And he said, Marty's always like, just do whatever, just, just try it. Go ahead. That's fine. Yeah. We'll do it. And you know, it doesn't matter. And I think that's so, that's so cool. The other scene I wanted to ask you about was because talking about what you were, the, the darkness and the flashing was the scene when the set, when the, when the black skulls or, or the Cenobikers, as I, like to call them like they're they're like the you know the Cenobites uh when they show up to to steal Mandy and and Nicolas Cage and yeah. it's the strobing how do yeah. you approach coloring a scene like that where it's it's these it's this is a strobe light in the middle of everything and and you're you're bouncing that with with the actual scene which is lit in a certain way it's because it looked I, I was re-watching outside and going this is such a complicated scene from a lighting and color standpoint it really was yeah and I think you know it, a lot of the kudos on that one go to Ben I mean a lot of the stuff that's in takes place in that like a little solarium area with the lighting mm. you know that's surrounding it um was very like it's very like a physical lighting um approach you know in mm. terms of mm. like what he did and I think you know for for that one I remember it was really like sort of just like trying to nail down like how extreme that looked. I mean, we really focused on them coming out of the woods like that. That was a really mm. intense sort of like entry where you first see them. Uh -huh, you know? uh -huh. Yeah. That red and then, light, the and red then light, you're like, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's just this wild like, I don't know. And so it starts in that point. I think for there it was a matter of like because the intensity is so strong in that scene it just from like the emotional standpoint of like what's happening and then mm -hmm. there's then layer on the the gorgeous score you know oh, um, unbelievable. in that film as well and just their performances of just like how it's quite silent between mm -hmm. them of what's happening you know mm -hmm. and it's like such mm -hmm. a violent moment really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yet the moment between them is this like silent space so yeah. i think for that it was really important to to not and you know because again we had this very over not overblown but very like intense look at them coming in and then going out when we see them you know every time you see them it's very very like f f you know fantastic mm. um but but that scene between um red and mandy is really you know and it was it had to be this kind of quiet 
scene between them. And I think the embellishment of color actually sort of went almost in the opposite direction. You know, I think we kind of like looked at that and thought, okay, well, this doesn't need to be, this already intense in the way it's edited um, and in their performances and in what's happening that this is all happening for the viewer, like the intensity is building for you. And so I think, you know, that's, that's a really good lesson as a colorist is to sort of figure out where you, you then remove color or where you draw it back Mm. because you need, you want the audience to experience something different. And that, to me, is a good example of that. It's still quite blue. Like, I mean, it's a very visceral, it's almost like sharpness, too, that we Mm -hmm. like kind of, and that comes with a little bit of the the grain and texture that's applied in in those scenes. But um, so there's like a sharpness to their features, but it's sort of soft in terms of like, it's not this color that's like placed Mm -hmm. on top of the image. And I think that was really important because it kind of allows you to be quite drawn into the two of them in that moment, which is a unique way to shoot that kind of a scene. I remember kind of knowing about it and then seeing it and being like, Oh, well, like there's, you don't even see them, you know, Um, it's all about red and Mandy and that's that sort of moment, you know, just before. And I think that that to me was just like that to me, it was like the the moment of restraint, I guess is what you say, but it is quite unique. (laughs) Like you said, no, no, it's, it's, it, well, and actually that gets me to a question because it's sort of like, it, it's a, it's a question that sort of goes into the, a lot, a big debate about coloring and grading and DIs, which is, I know from talking to, to Ben that, you know, a lot of the lighting that is captured and, and a lot of the imagery that's captured in Mandy was done in camera. And, and, you know, very much like if you, if you look at stuff of like Blade Runner from Roger Deakins, you know, it, he's trying to light that, how it's going to ultimately finish and how it's going to be finished from a color, color standpoint. And it's like how, you know, what is it that you, obviously it's different project to project, but you know, where do you mm-hmm. come down on this whole notion of sometimes people go shoot it flat and then we'll just, we'll color it when we get to it. Or, you know, we should be trying to get it in camera and, 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 you know, I'm just curious where you kind of come down, you know, in that. I mean, I, I really, I think, you know, I've, I've run the, the full scope of that, you know, from, from basically, you know, regrading some like relighting and grading entirely a film um, in post-production and then to a level uh, like not, not Deacons, but levels like that with cinematographers who like to mm-hmm. get most of it in camera mm-hmm. Um and you know where these like light a lot of people ask me about certain scenes in that movie i'm like okay that was all ben like i don't i didn't do anything there was like literally like saturation okay we're done you know um but like you know i think i think when trying to sort of like you know create a look and feel and experience i think that the the initial imagery that's captured like i'm all i always say to to sort of younger dps when they're asking me about certain things i'm like you know, your lenses are like probably the most important when you're talking about look and feel like what you've selected to capture that image, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the camera as well, like the sensor and the, if you're going to capture it on film or whatever, the, whatever mm-hmm. medium you're choosing, that's really going to be your like foundational point for like sets the whole tone. So we, we start with that. And I always like to say, like, I think from the color perspective, you can really get, I think you can get away with a lot of change in post-production and it still look quite natural as long as what you start with is it's like, we always say like the negative needs to be good. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if it's digital negative or if it's a regular mm-hmm. negative, we want it to have, have the detail and the density we want. We don't necessarily want to, you know, there's some strategies with DPs I've worked with recently where they've specifically underexposed or they specifically overexposed for mm-hmm. a certain look. Like you can really underexpose um, with Aerie, 
the airy camera and it gets a certain texture that's really nice mm -hmm. and people like that and so mm -hmm. there's certain uh strategies you can use to kind of get that in camera mm -hmm. look where you don't have to worry about you know there was a film called yeah sweet virginia where jessica lee gagne shot that one and she really did like expose a specific way so that when we graded there was a texture that was very similar like it was we weren't like some of the scenes were lifting and others were not we were doing very much like an overall kind of like exposure adjustment and feel and color kind of look across the whole film right. which then created that or like revealed the te the natural texture huh. and it, and in very much like a film processing way which i right. adored working on that project for that respect from that perspective because it was very much like okay we're going to systematically do this kind of like like a skip bleach or a, or, a yeah. fla or, or flash or flash the film like like exactly. like I, I always think of mccabe and mrs miller you know like a film right. like that like the vilmish stuff where it was like yeah. he's doing it on film it's for real the <laughs> So there are ways you can do that digitally. Like I yeah, think yeah, yeah. that was really successful on that particular effort. You know, I think that um, I'm really fascinated by that. Like, what can we do, you know, mm -hmm. to get that away? Mm -hmm. Going into HDR, we have a lot of, there's a lot of approaches, you know, in color that we can, we can really kind of help the, the cinematographer not lose what they shot, you know, in, in their kind of standard definition color space you know there's standard dynamic range um versus the hdr range which often kind of just everybody's like i hate it please don't please don't do that mm. um and i think that you know there there's definitely different things you can do to improve but i always say like you start with the negative i i really love you know if a dp is spending the time to really light and get these things in camera mm -hmm. as long as it's not the compromise it's not compromising like we're not baking in some lead or something that's like technically incorrect you know i think mm -hmm. that that's the best way because then as a colorist what you are doing is essentially enhancing and working through narrative you can mm -hmm. focus on narrative and you can focus on storytelling through color and not necessarily be working on fixing things or like necessarily trying to create something entirely new that said, I also love creating something entirely new. So, right, I mean, right. you kind of got to get in the, the mode of that. But I think when you are going like, we're going to create this look entirely in post, I think that is apparent to the audience. Mm -hmm. And so that when that's the case, I think that you have to really consider the genre and the story you're telling, if that's going to interfere with the story mm -hmm. or not. Does it make sense for us to do this in post-production? Mm -hmm. Because you know, the story is about, you know, technology or is we want, we want the creator to be really obvious in terms of like that, the, the feel, like we want the audience to feel the filmmaker. Do we not want that? Okay. Well then you should shoot that. You should get that all, you know, shot in so that the, the hand of that final, you know, tweak, whether it's visual effects or color grading is more subtle, you know, mm. and it, it, it feels like an extension of the cinematography and it, you kind of, take it a few ways. I mean, having worked on a documentary uh, series recently, you know, those that has that same kind of, uh, you have to kind of take that approach and think like, what am I doing, you know, to the image that's, that's telling the story and how am I helping or, or not? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I want to get to the name of Osaka documentary because it's it's really amazing. Uh, uh, but I, I wanted to ask you, with with anything, I guess when you when you get footage when you start, are you do you start by watching it? You know, with with no music, do you do you prefer to have score dialogue? You know, how are you watching it to kind of get in the narrative headspace to do what you do? 
you know, I mean, it, depending on the project, but you know, some a lot of the times the first image I see from a film is like a really, as a really boring, you know, and uh, you know, not I, nothing against the crew members, but usually it's like a, you know, assistant camera standing in front of the in front of the backdrop or something like that. And um, so I would say, like, you know, I, I I get it. I usually get into it from a technical standpoint, just kind of make making sure I'm placed in, you know, that I know what the range is, you know, really looking at it from like from a photography standpoint, sure, I guess. Sure. But then I am actually somebody who really loves to work with sound. And so um, when I, when the film is kind of getting to the, like when, you know, it's edited, so a lot of times I'll be involved when there is no film, it's just being shot or there's, it's in the middle of something. Um, I usually like to save a little bit, like, so that the first thing I really see is like a cut scene. So I can really kind of feel like what's my first reaction, you know? Mm. So if, let's say I get into a, a DI where it's like, okay, next week we're going to start grading the whole feature. And, you know, maybe we've, I've seen some bits and pieces here along the way, but like we're going to start with real one or whatever next week. I usually like to kind of get, get it in its full capacity that mm. whatever sound mix is going on, obviously usually sound mix is happening after. So there's an aspect where I don't have all of that, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but getting basically kind of watching it and being, kind of as immersed as I can be as the audience. Mm-hmm. I really like that approach of starting as the audience member and kind of trying to go, you know, look at, okay, what didn't work for me there? What was I feeling? What was I attracted to? I have this, like, this, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of goosebump feeling that I get mm-hmm. with certain certain projects. And it usually it's it's at a certain point in the film and I'll get it over and over. And usually when I get that, I'm like, oh, pay attention. Okay, that's that that moment. Um, and so I try to just kind of like scientifically analyze my reaction mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, the first kind of like watch through, whether it's the whole film or, you know, a, a scene or what have you. And then I try to kind of like deduce like, okay, well, what do I need to give this? You know, what, what's missing here? What could be improved? And then I kind of go, you know, that then usually the next step is to work with the, the director or the cinematographer both together and say, okay, this is kind of what I got from that and you know we were talking about this as inspiration kind of compare that bring those in if if those exist usually they do there's some yeah. kind of mood board or something sure. we've been talking about and then say okay here's you know how the starting point but then i did this because i kind of felt like you know this might this might really work for this but you know again it's just my my take and usually there's something interesting that comes out of that i mean working on music videos is really fun because from that perspective, you know, it's short. So you watch mm-hmm. it and you kind of develop your own, like, this is what the story is. You know, music videos can be all their own, like, sure, there's, sure. can be very metaphorical or very non-metaphorical or right. completely ridiculous. So usually you can kind of sort of create your own understanding and then mm. you present that back. And it's usually kind of interesting what they're like, ah, oh, okay. You know, taking a little <laughs> bit of consideration into your obtuned eye, right? In right, terms of right. like, you're going to come at it from this kind of color standpoint. But you're also, you know, I love movies. I'm an, I love to be try to present myself as the audience first, and then kind of take it take it to the next level. So usually it's like, oh, okay, I didn't I didn't see it that way. Like, oh, I didn't really get that line. Oh, well, we're gonna fix that. Okay, so you know, then we talk about what what's gonna be changed, what's not working, mm-hmm. and then like mm-hmm. that that helps me sort of angle how you know where I'm gonna focus more. If there's stuff that like needs to be kind of fixed, usually we we used to say like real two was always the that's usually like the 20 minute mark of the film, 20 to 30 minute mark. That's usually where there's like that is the hardest reel to color grade usually. Um and and in episodic it's a little earlier. Like it's mm-hmm. usually that part where all the problems arise and they literally arise in every part of the film usually. Huh. So it's like the sound and the editing and you know and that's where you're trying to make 
that storyline kind of, you know, what's the major issue? How is it going to get resolved? Who's, who are our main players? And that's all colliding. And right. that usually happens at about that moment. And it's very apparent usually in the content. So that's often <laughs> the real that, you know, we save real too. Like, don't, don't start with that one because it's going to have like disparate lighting or it's going to be shot on four different, you know, I think in Elysium there was a scene where it was like, one scene that takes place over 10 minutes and it was shot over four days and it's literally like the smoke rolls in there's like it was just all everywhere and you know trying to make this like Matt Damon's ripping the head off of a droid and you're like oh, no. um, well it's like when the movie when the movie's finding its way it's like when everyone is is exactly. finding you know like I've heard even even in an interview I've heard even Paul Thomas Anderson say about Phantom Thread or other movies he's like well you know in the early going it's like it wasn't going so well you know <laughs> and 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 that's I mean it because it is it's such a thing i mean it's like it's like previews at a play you know those the first thing it's not going to be great but then yeah. it then it finds its thing so that's so interesting to hear that you can actually chart that in the footage and in what oh, you yeah. do and what you see <laughs> i think it's pretty common i mean yeah. I, I haven't necessarily I've, I've again like in episodic and stuff like that it's usually the second or third episode where you're like you're like oh my god this one is just like it's it just feels like it takes longer to find it mm. or figure it out because it, there's it's thematically the biggest challenge you know for the filmmaker or like the communication or in the narrative so it's just natural that that would like play out in color and play out in you know in in Mm -hmm. how it was shot or whatever so you're trying to like make these things work together and I think to me that was like well I remember coming up with that years ago and be like I'm always gonna do this and so I always (laughs) I don't I I'll look at real one or start with the first bit and then I'll jump you know and then once we've sort of like we've sort of like um settled in the sort of more you know easy <laughs> easier stuff then we go into the challenging work because we know we've set up the rules for what does this color mean what is what is the point what's going to happen is it going to evolve okay cool so now we know what the goalposts are and, and mm-hmm. we can go back into that that reel or whatever it is you know whatever that segment is that's there's always one you know mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. like it's that's not really working we got to figure it out um and then figure out like what we're going to do and sometimes it takes like a few you know you mm-hmm. get through the whole thing and you watch it a few times and then you're like ah okay now i see it mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but not starting with that is generally my approach you know um because i just find it just fascinating that that will always like you know evolves in some way it's you know something that was challenging to shoot will appear challenging in a story um mm-hmm. And usually it's because it's the challenge in the story. And so that's like always kind of the thing that it works its way through right to the very end, you know, wow. which is super cool. But Oh my God. Well said. That's that. Yeah, that's pretty great. Uh, uh, so let's talk about Naomi Osaka because, uh, you know, I, I saw on your Instagram that you had, you were involved in it and, and I'm like, Oh, I have to watch this. I have to watch this, this documentary. And, you know, documentaries for me can go sort of one of two, one of two ways, which is that it's just, okay, this is just kind of a, I don't know, Wikipedia type doc where, where it's, and then there are documentaries that are made by directors and real filmmakers that have such a strong point of view. And I was just knocked out by, by this documentary and, and, you know, just, just to geek out on the, on the director, which is uh, uh, Garrett Bradley. Is that who she, she yeah. is? She is absolutely fantastic. I mean, yeah. this is like just announces. I mean, I know her documentary time was really lauded, but but this was because it's like okay, oh, it's a it's a it's about a sports figure, but yet it's this cautionary tale about fame and pressure and dreams, and and yet this beautiful introspective psychological portrait of somebody who's extraordinary and also innocent, and and also from a directing standpoint, just you know the the Dutch angles that she uses, that you know she 
puts you in the mind space of of this athlete of this elite athlete and also the 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 from your perspective this sort of almost like 16 millimeter NFL films look that I feel like, is that correct? Or something like that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really good pick actually, you know, um, in terms of the look, you know, we, we we really came to something, but yeah, 16 millimeter is definitely a big, (laughs) big part of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, it was interesting too, because, you know, I've worked on actually like my earlier part of my career was actually a number of sports, sports figure documentaries oh, wow, really? i did interesting a documentary called facing ali which was about the you know like 10 fighters who fight like main not all of them but like 10 key figures that um made an impact in ali's like career mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. because at the time you know he had already kind of gone into the place where he wasn't he couldn't really speak and he wasn't mm-hmm. like a couldn't be interviewed at all. Um, the filmmaker chose to uh, to tell that story through the eyes of the ten fighters, which was wow. really cool. Yeah. And so aesthetically, that that film had like, such a look, like they 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 were so like exacting when they put where they put each each fighter. Like they went to their hometown, they found a location, they put them in it, they lit it in this like just like painterly lit way, just so gorgeous. Mm. Um, again, where a lot of it's in the the material and then you have all of this archival stuff of ali i'm the greatest you know like mm. you know on all this this kind of there's some verite stuff of some early early fights um there was uh some really but like most of it's like that like news sports footage stuff you know some of it's gold some of it's really ugly and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um in that film, you know, what we really tried to do was like find find like a texture to tie it all together and then, you know, work in the color from each fighter so that when we went back to their archival sort of storylines, they're talking and then we go back into their storylines. We were like drawing a tie between. So I would like tune in colors into their current day space that were visible in whatever fight. Like sometimes it was quite random, but they would have like this blue light and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. one of them was like a, a famous fight that had this kind of crazy red sort of scene well -hmm. we would like bring that into their modern day so that it could cut back and forth and you would know who was talking you would you would kind of be following the story through color which is really fun and that was really to me like a very early project for me to to really like expand on on process so and then i worked with that filmmaker and the series of that that kind of team on a, a few other projects after that um including one that was uh all black and white so i, I did that so it's kind huh. of funny you know coming to garrett where she had just finished a black and white film actually most of her films leading up to this point had been black and white wow and so i had that experience of like a black and white sports documentary not that's what we were doing but we had this discussion about yeah texture and what does that mean and what are we doing and uh and we again very kismet in terms of just like how we wanted to approach it and and her you know point of view that she gave me a few distinct um references like inspiration and i was kind of like oh, what, were, what, because, what were they do you remember um we had there was a few there was a few like a lot of it was like film they would be like film filmic references mm-hmm. there would be like specific frames that oh. were not you know referenced to any any movie in particular it was like i right. like the way this image looks right like, right okay, right interesting right, okay. right okay um we also talked a lot about the film the two popes because that comes from the uh, perspective of it's not a documentary but huh. there are these aspects of this reality shooting like this uh-huh. sort of mixture of narrative dr- drama i mean it's anthony hopkins it's like not you know it's obviously they don't show the real footage i don't know if you've seen that film but they yes, don't show yes, it i have i have i have absolutely yeah the whole idea where it's sort of played like it's almost feels like a documentary. Like mm-hmm, you're like, mm-hmm. you kind of forget for a moment that they're 
they're performing this and mm -hmm. you see Anthony Hopkins put into like old news footage. And, you know, I think there was something really incredibly seamless about the way they took that film and also how they picked out, you know, the white and the red and, and how those colors kind of tied through. And then there was the flashback that was kind of more black and white and mm -hmm. textured and had a different feel. So like, it was a lot of, you know, talking <sighs> about what was really working in that kind of a film. And it's very different. We're talking about essentially a documentary, uh -huh. um, but we don't want it to play like a reality show. Again, right. nothing against reality shows, but like, obviously you can tell with the cinematography that it's, there's, like you said, the tons of Dutch angles, lots of verite, like lots mm. of just where we're kind of standing back and watching something unfold, you know, that mm. couldn't be almost as mundane as just somebody hitting a tennis you know, ball back and forth. Or the press conferences are just, the are just they're, they're, it, it, it just feels like it's the most anxiety inducing set, you know, yes, that it's yes. just her alone and, 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 yes. and, and the guy on the side and, and just the treating of, of, of all of that stuff. And, and like you yeah. were saying the, the seamlessness, I'll, I'll let you finish. Cause I, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But yeah, and then that was kind of the next point was that like we, you know, she had all of this, you know, a lot of the stuff was like current day, I you know this is happening right now, mm -hmm. you know, which I think is really different, you know, like we, you know, something like a documentary about somebody that's like right now in the mm -hmm. news, like <laughs> she's everywhere. She's on all the billboards in Los Angeles. She's, you know, you know, advertising for Sweet Green and she's on the cover of Vogue and Sports Illustrated and, and she's at the Olympics and, you know, there's a documentary coming out about her on the mm -hmm. same, you know, two weeks before all of that. I think it, you know, it, it's just needed a lot of care and sort of like, um, you know, careful consideration in terms of, you know, how that story was going to be presented. And, and I think you get, yeah, there's all this current day footage, like usually in a, in a documentary, you get archival stuff of like the olden days, you know, or like, you know, 40 years ago or something. And then, you know, with, with Naomi Osaka, we're looking at stuff from, mm -hmm. yeah, there's some handy cam from her dad, you know, from mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. uh, 1998 or whatever, you know, how, you know, like thinking about, um, how to kind of blend that stuff in but I think for a lot of the, a lot of it is just stuff that's been shot in the last five to, to maybe 10 years five five or so years and so you know her her biggest kind of uh not I wouldn't say pain point but like challenge was like how do we keep this kind of artful I really want this to feel a certain way I want mm. I want the audience to have a like an emotional response to be in the story and to be listening to what Naomi's saying, but also feel like you're like, you're kind of playing this like boy, you're kind of voyeur on her life, you know, and she's letting you in to some really like intimate moments. And then mm -hmm. it's also kind of like you're sending back. So it's really kind of a unique, um, unique kind of look and, and like lens on her. And I think then we cut to, you know, then there'd be sequences where we have to get to, these full these full matches of you mm -hmm. know her basically beating Serena Williams um, mm -hmm. in that epic epic game um, that sort of set her off into to what we're looking at the Naomi Osaka we're looking at now and I think how do we take those that that all this ESPN you know kind of footage and like make it look like it's part of this film mm -hmm. and I think that was like that to me that was like the biggest sort of like challenge or hurdle in in terms of like what is the look that we can apply that that sort of textures and ties in this this verite stuff this modern day stuff or you know this beautiful cinematography that they've got that's easy you know mm -hmm. to make that yeah, look good sure, and, sure. and looky but then how do we then talk about this you know take a whole game basically a, a tennis game that's cut down into like the highlights and like make that look like it's part of this you know mm -hmm. and i think 
I think you could go either way. We talked about you could you could just let it like let do you want to play it like it's literally on TV mm-hmm. and it just has that look, or do we want it to feel like it's part of the film experience? And obviously we went with the latter of like trying yeah. yeah. in a certain look and then going into that 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 look back at that match within that that look yeah. and then holding it. And then a lot of people have said this and they watch it because it's a three-part. It almost plays like a feature because you kind of just go into the next one. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it also has a story structure of you know her rise, and then in the middle, you're like, is she going to be okay? I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 you know, and you're crying, and it's 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 yeah. very intense, and yeah. and and uh, uh, and then her sort of self actualization and realization at the end, and 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 how she finds her voice by using it is really love. It's really beautiful. And mm-hmm. and what you were saying about the seamlessness, you know, I, I had sort of two thoughts about that, and how you're putting how the director was able to put us in her mind. It's the use of Zooms, which are mm-hmm. so, you know, Tarantino always talks about, you know, he uses Zooms because they're psychological. You know, moving right. the camera is a physical thing, right? But the Zoom is the images kind of it's closing in on you. And I felt that so much with her Zooms. It, like she'd do a Dutch dangle with a Zoom. I was like, wow, that's yeah, serious. Yeah. This is Go for it. Yeah. really amazing. <laughs> and then and then also the blending of of um of cell phone footage. And, and, and that was another thing because that is how, how people nowadays visually associate, you know, it's the YouTube aesthetic and the iPhone aesthetic, particularly the stuff of her talking about Kobe and, you know, she's filming it with like a power box behind her on the wall. And, 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 but yet that's how that moment should feel. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. It's, 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 but so, so yeah, so, so it it is so seamless. And, and, and I guess the last thing I'll, I'll geek out about was the, um, how like you were saying, how do you play the competition? And and this, I thought it was almost like Scorsese's last waltz where when you're with Naomi, you're just with her. You don't see wides, right? You don't see the audience in in that documentary, which which was a conscious decision. And I feel like you guys did that a lot where unless it was the true competition where you guys were cutting back and forth between players, it was just her. And I thought that was so, that was so powerful. But yeah, the look of the film, it's really also emotional. I mean, the texture of the film, you know, so congratulations. It's an amazing film. I mean, it really is. that's great to hear. I mean, it's something that just, just came out. And right. so you're always like, you know, you're never sure what, if that's even going to be apparent or visible and like, mm-hmm. if it was successful or not, you know, right. I mean, it's right. always like, the, sure. you, you think about it and you, you, you spend a lot of time, obviously kind of going over it and you go, okay, well, I hope that's there, you know? Um, and it's definitely like a, a, a different, like, I mean, I don't have one particular look, but like, if you, you know, the other, some, a lot of mm-hmm. films that we would have talked about up until now like this one is a departure from that it definitely mm-hmm, goes into a, mm-hmm. a different place and I think um I I enjoy that like the coming out into the world because it, it's sort of like I feel like there's a range there for me that like it's not defined in one particular style and I like I love the idea of being able to explore that in different mediums and and mm. being given trust to do it you know and yeah. like um I feel like it's it again it was I was actually working on a few projects at once and that one, and they were all so different. And so it was just, it was so obvious to me, like in some stages of that film, like where to go, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this is where we're doing this. This is going to be this color. You know, I absolutely know it. Um, Just because it was like, like you said, you know, we're, we're with her a lot of the time. And I'm interested, interestingly, like watched a a match of hers recently. And it was like, 
Oh, I was wow. missing those moments of like, you know, we're like cutting to all these other people. And I'm like, oh, I want to see Naomi now. I want to see her face. I want to see, you know, and it, and it just, I've just got used to, I, I've obviously yeah. watched it, you know, hundreds of times. So I've seen yeah. a few matches over and over where it's like from entirely from her perspective and like seeing her mom. I'm like, where's her mom? I, I can see Corday. Like, where are the people? And um, in one match where they're like, she's looking to her team and, and they don't show the team. And I'm like, where are they? I want to see them. So it's, it's just, it's just interesting how, you know, you kind of, you know, feel like that there's a little success in that where, you know, yes, it's, it's very apparent, like we're, we're taking it through, through some sort of her eyes. And like to speak about the, the moment of, of her with the, the, obviously the Kobe, yeah. you know, that whole news is like, didn't nothing that obviously that was planned or known about at the time, I believe we were, uh, they, they were separate. So they had given her essentially a camera or like her phone and just said like, anytime you can do it, you know, you know, take some, some, tell us is your diary can basically mm-hmm. um if you feel comfortable give us you know like do some diary cam stuff and of course like garrett would have been with her a lot at the time but you know whenever she wasn't it was like they weren't sure you know if she wanted to do it or not i think it was just yeah it was really key like that was such a high there's such a high key scene you're like <laughs> you know this isn't a filmmaker but like it's actually quite an interesting location and like yeah. sort of setting to to do this to have this moment and yeah. um and that just kind of goes to show like I don't know, just there's there's some really like masterful uh, decisions and strategies, I think, in that that are very under would be very underrated. But I think if you like it's interesting to hear that, you know, having a closer look, I think it's really great that that was evident. Um, and I'm really excited for Garrett. I think she's just got like such a good momentum in terms of like her her voice and mm. her view, mm. which is quite unique to me. I like I, you know, I think it's a different take. And I think. I don't know. I just, I'm really interested to see more, more from her, but also from that standpoint, you know, like how can we sort of blur the lines between what is documentary or reality and like fiction and, you know. Yeah. I mean, she, 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 she to me really represents, you know, a, a bold new female voice and, and, and the, and the voice of a filmmaker, an original filmmaker. And I, and I felt it in, in every aspect of, of the film. And it also, I like to say this all the time, you know, particularly about some of my very favorite filmmakers is that you can make anything cinematic. And I think it's the true test of a, of a filmmaker Fincher. I mean, look, you look at social network, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's should have been a TV movie to a certain degree and right. he, but yet, he always calls it, I had his production designer on here a couple times and he always talks about, they love the cinema of the mundane. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and it's so, and you know, the Naomi Osaka thing was like, okay, well this is, it's, it's really, it's, it's sort of not mundane because she's an elite athlete and the stakes, but yet her life is still mundane. You know, it's still yeah. routine. It's still, so it was just such a beautiful balance of that. Uh, and, and just really refreshing to, to see. To me, I, I, what's really cool about the, the Osaka you know, series is just the idea of taking a storyline uh, that's happening in the now and mm-hmm. then presenting uh, mm-hmm. the audience with a new lens on that. Mm-hmm. And I think these stories, because we're so used to seeing like into the the, the lives now of people mm-hmm. in a much more vulnerable way, but it's still quite manipulated in terms right. of like the right, Instagram right, 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 right. and, oh, look, I'm in, you know, Salma Hayek's house, or who, I don't even know why I said that name, but you know, I'm thinking right. about the prophet. I don't know why. Right, um, I right, mean, right, I right. some celebrities' house, and um, so I feel like I know them, and yet you don't. And I think you know the idea of the sort of storytelling that's happening now. I think the sort of like blend of like you know 
giving us a little bit more insight is super important. Well, I guess I guess just to ask you, you know, if you had any advice for you know people who want to do what you do, or filmmakers, or cinematographers, uh, you know, what what would it be? I often say, you know, try not to narrow too much in terms of where you're going at the start. Like if you are just starting off, um, really try to get in and take on as much, not take on as much, but try different roles, you know, in terms of um, like I did essentially, like I really quickly learned I didn't like being on set or there's some things that really like guided me towards one thing. And I think I wouldn't have necessarily got there as quickly if I just, you know, I don't know, hadn't tried the contrast, right? Like experience the contrast as much as you can. I know that's such a colorist, like super (laughs) flaky colorist thing to say, but to me, I feel like that's like my life. Like, you know, because you can't really, (laughs) the sweet isn't as sweet without the sour and the, you know, the darks aren't as dark without the white. I think it's really, (laughs) to me, it's, it's what helps you define like what you're good at and what you love to do. And I think, um, uh, you know, if you do something or you really dislike it, it's going to like create the space for the thing that you like. So I like that, you know, especially as a young, uh, you know, somebody who wants to be work in film or whatever. I love film. I don't know what I want to do mm-hmm. for the more, you know, more people that are, have already kind of gotten to a certain stage where they're like, I want to be a colorist, um, or an editor. This is kind of like what I want to do. How do I get there? You know, to me, it's, to me, it's a combination of, you know, doing the work a little bit, you know, get, get your hands on as much of, um, film as you can, like projects as you can, really practice your craft, work in places that aren't as risky in terms of, you know, you're, you know, I'm going to take on a feature, you know, like try, try small, you know, figure out what your, your skill is, like what you bring, um, work on that. And then, you know, do, you know, find somebody you can learn from and it doesn't necessarily have to be a colorist. Sometimes it's a producer, sometimes it's an editor, you know, in my case, I feel like I learned a lot from VFX, you know, people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that kind of shaped me and, and directors. So, you know, getting into some place where there's, you know, images being made and, and sort of trying that craft and doing the work and finding what it is that you can do. But then at the same time, you know, finding somebody um, that is doing something, you know, that's close to there that can really guide you. I think it's really important. I think it's always nice to have somebody that's mentoring you and somebody that you can mentor you know somebody up at just one stage up and one stage behind you mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. can really help you again ex- you know figure out which direction you should go and like things will reveal themselves as they go but they only do if you put yourself out there and in the place so like you know that we started this this full circle with you know how did you get there just never say no just do it you know yeah. i think to an extent don't do don't do something if you're really putting yourself at a huge risk you know mm-hmm. but um but if it's something that's like realistic to you and that you think you know you can offer something and you can learn out of it uh, yeah absolutely you know jump in um and and try to take the reins and like every time you're working with there's always going to be something on a pro- somebody on a project that's going to know a lot more than you keeping that in mind, you know, and seeing what you can learn from those people, because it's not always uh, very evident, you know, what, what it is that you can learn, but usually you'll look back four or five years and go, Oh, that was that, that was that conversation I had with, you know, that filmmaker or that director or that, you know, whatever that producer at that time. And that set me off on this path and you don't always see it in the moment. So it's sort of just like keeping yourself in that experience and letting, letting it happen, I think is, is really, to me, you know, the best way to to look at it and to plan it out. Well said. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. 
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.